Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab and you are joining us for another episode of the Property and Business Series. And my name is Goose. And my name is Charlie. And we are absolutely delighted to be sharing another awesome action-packed episode specifically designed to try and address the, the hopes, dreams, fears, desires, needs, wants, considerations, and specialities that relate to business and property. And oh, today was, today was uh, it's very exploratory. Identified in the mornings, podcast in the mornings, my brain is very liquid. And we, I think today we went in a lot of really interesting directions. What, I can't even, what did we even cover today, Charlie? Today was all about the, in, if I had to sum it up, because it was a big and interesting episode, but it's understanding how property investment is different for business owners. Not what's the same, but what's different. Because we all want to get to the same journey, as you mentioned, time, money, and freedom. But understanding that there's kind of this different pathway. And I think you've got some interesting experiences and understanding of this because you've worked on both sides. You've worked with people that may be in a job and then also the business owners as well. Totally, totally. So this episode, um, as much as there probably are a lot of other differentiations between business owners and non-business owners, this really tackles the idea of finance. So we talk about things like borrowing, we talk about things like tax, we talk about things like rent vesting. I mean, we even we even got into a, a, a very energetic soliloquy about whole lifestyle design and all of that kind of stuff, which was fantastic. But one of the things I want to point out though, is that even if you don't, and I said this pretty much in the last one, but even if you don't own a business, there's there's a lot. There are a lot of nuggets in here. We talked about stuff like, you know, tax structures, whether to invest in 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 companies. Have you got notes, Charlie? What else did we talk about? What did we cover? Dude, I'm sitting here and like I'm rethinking of the episode we just recorded, and yeah. I'm like, we talked about tax, we talked about borrowing, and I'm like, I, I should be asleep right now. That sounds like a really boring topic, but. It was so interesting. It was so energetic around how this stuff is important and what you was there. It wasn't the boring stuff that'll put you to sleep. It was the stuff you need to know and how to think about it, which I think I would most look forward to anyhow. Totally. And I think you touched on a really great point there, how to think about it. So this isn't an instructive episode. This is this is not designed to be like, hey, all you need to do is go A, point A to point B to point C, make sure you lodge your tax return that says this, and off you go, bang, 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 go to the bank. That is not what this episode is. This episode is designed to give you the, the intellectual uh, understanding of the different ways that you can go about thinking around how to get everything you can out of all that you've got, right? And I think that that is a huge thing that, 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 can apply, that absolutely applies to business owners, but absolutely applies to anyone. How can, you, how, can you, how can you squeeze more juice out of the orange? How can you have what you want and how can you have it now? And I believe that all of that is possible if we can encourage and inspire people to think differently, to think better, and to explore the opportunities that are, that are right in front of us every single day. Absolutely. Let's get into this episode, Goose. All right. Let's get into it. So without further ado, let's get stuck into it. Look, Make sure you tune in for the next episode. If you're enjoying this, let us know. Send us an email, rate, review, like, share. If, you, if you've got a friend who is going to benefit from this, I would, I would personally consider it a favor. I would consider it a personal gift if you could share this with one other person that you think that this is going to benefit. And if you listen to this, I'm, I'm absolutely 1000% certain that you are going to know someone who this is going to benefit. So I would really appreciate if you can, you can share this with them because what we want to do with this series is we want to help to educate, inspire, inform, and encourage more people to live the life that they can. So without further ado, let's get stuck into it. And as ever, look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Property and Business series uh, as part of the Investor Lab. Charlie, how are you today? Excellent. I must say, I was excited after episode one. And I can always tell when I'm excited because when I go into my house, um, it's what I talk to my wife about when I get home. So Bianca, I just kept talking about this podcast episode. So anything that makes it into the home, makes it into the home conversation. She's normally like, you're really into this, aren't you? 
Uh, so that's <laughs> it was, awesome. It was good fun. That's awesome. The same thing happened actually with myself and Gabby. We, um, I was flat out all, all day yesterday. I think I recorded. I think I recorded. You mentioned you just did you know, this podcast three for you today. I think I did three podcasts yesterday. I was just like literally talking for nine hours straight, like just back to back talking. So I finally, I didn't get to speak to Gabby all day. We finally went out for um, we went out for for a little bit of dinner, and that was the thing. That was a. That was the main topic of the conversation. We talked about this. We talked about that. She goes, "Well, that sounds like it was a really good podcast." And so I was really pumped, uh, pumped after it as well. And so I'm really excited to get into this again and to keep exploring these topics. I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of relevancy there for for both of us, and we bring bring two very interesting angles to the to the discussion. So I'm excited. What are we going to be talking about today, though? So today's episode is really, and I guess we'll, we'll look at how we frame this, but it's how property investing is different for business owners. Mm. Because, uh, I'll share a little bit of my own experience here. I, I mean, I've gone down the rabbit hole of listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of books. Mm. And the perspective they often take is for someone that maybe works a nine to five. So maybe they're an accountant, lawyer, or they have some sort of reasonable paying job. And there's just certain things that are different for business owners or need to take a different approach with mindset and they aren't very well covered. And if you end up as a business owner, let's say going to buy properties, some of the things you may have heard of don't really apply or you mm. can't do some of the things they can do or perceive. And it will, for me, it was very easy to get lost and go, oh, maybe this isn't for me. And it was just that I needed different information. I would go a little bit further than that and say as well that if you try and apply the solutions that are right for somebody else, to the problems that are that are that you have, you may end up applying the wrong solution to the wrong problem and solving the problem that isn't. And I see this happen a lot because you see, there's a lot of different. Um, oh my god, there's so many different strategies and tactics and ideas and courses and, this, and all these kind of things. Everything from options to options, no money down deals, and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I will, I will overtly say. Every single one of them works. Even the ones, even the ones who are dodgy spruikers, right? Their strategy works for someone, right? For someone. <laughs> I love the little follow through there. <laughs> the yeah. context for someone. Maybe for some, not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe not you. And this is kind of the problem. And so I wholeheartedly agree. I think there's um, I think that business owners, how do we say this, right? The desire, the goal is the same. It's not like, it's not like uh, I own a business and so therefore my hope and my dream is that one day I'll become a fluffy bird and I'll fly away into the... It's like, no, it's the same. It's literally the same, right? The same desire for business owners exists uh, that is the same for people who don't have a business and work in a job. That is quite simply more time, more money, more freedom. That's it, right? That's what we all want. We're all human beings. And if we can find a way where we can achieve those results... We actually then create an environment where we can all have more impact. It doesn't matter whether you work at Kmart or whether you've got 100 employees. The desire and the goal is the same. Now, how you're going to spend that time may be different and that's fine and that's all good, but the same desire exists. However, the pathway is different and I think that's where the conversation is, uh, is super relevant. Absolutely. It really, really is. So, Goose, I mean, we've got some categories already kind of outlined on previous discussions because you've been very generous in helping me understand the difference. But I, I want to start this one at the one that has caused me the most frustration. And I know this is one that you often see other business owners commenting on. Mm. And that's the finance and borrowing side of things. I want to start here because um, from what I've seen in a lot of things, and I'll, I'll give it some context before I hand it over, is that if you're an employee or you work for someone, you can very much just take your... Uh, payslips and go in and say, look, this is me for the last 12 weeks. Head it over. Give me the cash. Yeah. Bank me up. Uh, but if you're in business, um, it's more like well, <sighs> a biology exam, do a biopsy, it's, speak to your friends. Man, it is. It is. It is. You, you touched on something really interesting there, but even, even that, right? Because I think the biggest issue... Um, that exists, I would even say the biggest issue that exists for me is the curse of knowledge, right? Because I don't understand what people don't know. My pathways led to a, a deeper understanding. You touched on something there that I don't even think most people realize. You said you can go into a bank, broker, whatever the case may be, with 12 weeks of payslips. Most people don't even understand that that's the case. So if you are an employee, a PAYG employee, and you have 
three months of pay slips, you can go get a loan. You don't need a year. You don't need to have been in the job for a year. A lot of people still think that. They still think that they need to be in, the, in a job for a year so they've got stable income and then they can go into mortgage. In fact, it isn't even three months. You can, in many cases, depending on the industry and all of that kind of stuff, all you need is a signed employment contract. You don't even need any proof of income. Now, caveat to this, none of this is financial advice, okay? So just go and speak to a broker and if you need a broker, reach out to us, we can, we can steer you in the right direction. But it is, the, the, the borrowing situation is insanely different, right? Because essentially as an employee, You've got a de-risk. You've got a de-risked income position. So when a lender looks at you, they say, "Well, there's a business owner who's taking all the risk, and they're committing to paying you." So if there's a contract, if there's proof, if there's all of that kind of stuff, they're like, "All right, cool. Looks like the business owner is actually doing what they think they can do, and they're actually paying you." And so that's where the, the trickle down idea comes from. Now, the massive difference there is that um, business, like for business owners. I could, on paper, give myself a $200,000 a year income. However, if that comes at the detriment of the business making profit, then any loss the business makes comes directly off my income position. So therefore, even if you're a business owner, you know, basically, it, it, there is no way to get around not having your business financials analyzed as well. And when they want to analyze your whole position, they want to look at, at the bare minimum, the bare minimum the last 12 months of, um, of books for the business to make sure that everything is as, as it looks on the balance sheet and you're, paying, you're not just fiddling with the books and get, making your, your income look good. And in fact, in many cases, they want to look at the last two years of revenue for the business, which has actually been a challenge for me with starting this business because we don't, you know, we, we're, we're a fairly young business. So, so having those, those kind of things has actually been really challenging. So I face that challenge. I know a lot of other business owners do. Because what a lot of business owners don't think about a lot of the time is what, like, what is my, like, how, how does my business look from a borrowing capacity perspective? They often think, okay, how can I pay myself? How can I minimize, minimize my tax? So they'll, they'll claim things and they'll do all this kind of stuff. But if they claim too much stuff, they're not gonna, actually going to have a healthy, healthy balance sheet or a healthy income statement. So they're actually going to, uh, it's going to be to the detriment of their borrowing capacity. Yeah, just hugely, just hugely. And, and you got to, the thing that really surprised me here, like let's use a two-year example. This is actually what hurt me. Yeah. Um, in a two-year example, so the bank was looking at two years of my financials. In one month, I decided to invest in my business and hire people, buy software, mm. do trainings, probably go to a, a mastermind event or something like that. And on paper, that month looked terrible best money I spent for the business. Like you, when I look at it, I was like, well, wow, that month created actually the next 12 months that were good. But when they average it out, if you've got a, a big negative month in there, they, they quickly turn it into it. That really drags down the average and go, hold up, cowboy. Like yeah. that makes you severely less lendable. So I think if you're a business owner that's considering buying a property, you really have to be cautious of how heavily you invest into your own business or what you make your financials look like for tax if you're going to go down that path, like it really does affect it on a huge level. Massively, massively. And I think this is like one of the biggest things that anyone needs to think about business owner or not. A lot of people think that paying tax is bad. So, I mean, sure, as long as you don't want to ever invest your money. You know, the reality is the more tax you pay, the more money you're making. Like that's, 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 that's the reality. Now, we always want to be tax efficient and tax intelligent, right? There's a massive difference to that. But at the end of the day, you need to have more surplus income if you want to start getting ahead. You need to make more profit in your business. Like top line revenue is not really going to solve your problems. You need to look at, you need to look at bottom line profits and you know, all of that kind of stuff. And the same thing goes if you want to start actually getting ahead in investing. So I think like borrowing is you know, borrowing's hugely, hugely different and uh, a uniquely challenging position for a lot of business owners. And I think that's actually one of the things that can kind of get in the way with a lot of business owners that want to get started as well. Can I ask you a question then? Yep. How do you feel about, let's say, and I'm going to say this is not financial advice or business advice from an accountant. I will preface this, but quite commonly you will hear, and I kid you not, I've just heard this from a friend, which I'm horrified if you can't tell by my tone, is like they've received the advice that they should buy plant equipment uh, at a certain time so their tax bill's lower. Go buy that new car, you'll pay less tax. Go buy that uh, excavator or piece of equipment or whatever it is so that you can bring down your tax bill full well knowing that 
it will affect other areas. Like that, that's a very common thing you hear people say. How do you feel about that as someone who's thinking about investing? I'm just going to say it plainly. That is just stupid, right? That is that that is that is that is the epitome of a low financial IQ. And I think that anyone giving that advice should immediately have their AFSL taken away from them. And I'll explain. Okay. So if you were to, if you were to, let's just say, uh, find a way to reduce your taxable revenue by $10,000, which would be pretty good. Right. Or even if it was more, right. Even if it was more, even if you, even if you, so let's say, let's say you bought a $50,000 piece of plant equipment and that saved you a 25 and that, so that was an investment of $50,000 so that you could save 25% of the, of that as tax. Right. Makes sense. So well, I just kind of st- st- let's make it a car. Let's make it. A, we'll go with a car. That's the common one. Right, so you cool. spend fifty grand on a car. Okay. So your accountant goes, "Bang! You should spend fifty grand on your car." Yeah, fifty grand on your car. So you are going to save. Um, you're going to save on your tax about twelve and a half thousand dollars. Not tax advice, but this is just that's based on a twenty five percent marginal tax rate in your business. Okay, so if you if you saved. $12,500 in tax, but you've reduced your income by $50,000. Not only have you borrowed, you reduced your borrowing capacity, but you've also wasted an opportunity to invest that, that $12,500 in, in or, or sorry, the, the difference of the, of the, of the $50,000 minus $12,500 because you have to pay the tax, the difference being $37,500. So you, you then have, have, have avoided your opportunity to spend that $37,500 that you've then paid tax on, right, in something that is actually going to grow in value and, and improve your income. So, for example, if you bought a car, that's a depreciating asset for a start. You probably don't need it if you're only buying it for tax purposes. You've saved yourself $12,500 in tax. However, you've cost yourself $37,500 in opportunity to be able to invest that into an income-producing and a growth-based asset. Now, when you then factor the actual opportunity cost of that over a 12-month, 24-month or a, or a, or a 10-year period, it's, it can li- literally cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, in, in lost opportunity cost. It's, it's insane advice. and I think it's absolutely ridiculous for anyone to be doing that. I, I think that there is almost no reasonable position that you would decide to buy something you do not need to, to reduce your tax. That goes for negatively geared properties. That goes for depreciating assets. That goes for unneeded, unwarranted, and unnecessary equipment in your business. Did I say that clearly enough? You did. I'm just uh, upset that was me not too long ago. <laughs> it's just... The interpretation that some of these uh, companies give or these advice givers give is that somehow you're getting, in this example, a free car, but you just you're just not. But that's the um, approach they take. Like it's it's very very I think unhinged. But I want to ask another question here though. If if you as a someone that's thinking, hey, I want to get into property, would you encourage people as a first approach to clean out the debt of their business? Is this something where they should consider a pay off your car or remove uh, credit card loans or anything to yeah. that prior? Yeah, totally. So um, I can't necessarily speak to um, the specifics of say like a business owned credit card because I don't specifically understand how that may impact your personal borrowing. But what I can speak to is in a general sense. So absolutely, firstly, good business housekeeping, reduce your unnecessary overheads and increase your profitability, right? That's, that's something that we all need to do all the time. Uh, Gabby and I do it monthly. We review all of our stuff and go, okay, do we still need this? Is this still relevant? And try and keep, keep our house tidy. Now, that's not just from a view like, can we borrow money? It's like, okay, do we have a healthier business? What else can we do? How can we reinvest? All of that kind of stuff. So there's that. Now, when you start thinking about borrowing and things like that, so some, one of the big myths, one of the big misunderstandings I would suggest about credit cards, and this applies whether you're a business owner or not, is that people might, somebody might have a $50,000 credit card, for example, and they might, not have, they might have just got it for points. They might have got this great thing and they got all these like frequent flyer miles and how good, I've done it, well, I've got credit cards. And the thing is, they may, might, not, might not owe any money on it. All right, I pay it off all the time. Like I pay it off monthly, right? I, I never owe any money on it. Like I always pay it before it's due. All good. So they think and they believe that, they, that it doesn't affect their borrowing capacity. Okay? Here's the thing. If you have a $50,000 credit card and 
It is fully paid off. You don't owe, owe, owe any, any money on it. Charlie, how much do you think that would affect your borrowing? I know where you're going and unfortunately I know the answer. But I, I, it's this, I got caught by this again. I had this, we uh, use credit cards for points off our ad spend in the business. So when we run advertising online, we thought, how clever is this? We're spending this money on marketing and we can do some points. This is a great idea. Mm. Until my last borrowing where I had to have my credit card reduced because they were taking that into account of borrowing capacity. So if it's a $50,000 credit card, I imagine they take into account $50,000. You would think that, wouldn't you, Charlie? But even that's wrong. Tell me more, Goose. Tell me more because I, I thought that was the answer. <laughs> I thought that was the answer too. So you're not the only one. I thought it was equal to the borrowing capacity of the card, even if it was fully paid off. I have recently found out from a trusted financial professional that depending on the lender, it can be up to five times that. So if you have a $50,000 credit card, depending on the lender and depending on who you're going with, that can impact your borrowing capacity up to $250,000. So essentially, they'll look at it and say, you've got potentially a, a, a $250,000 liability. Don't ask me why it's five times. However, that is something that I think a lot more people need to know about. That's a house. That's a house. You, you literally showed me a house yesterday that was around that price and to think that you would be kneecapped in borrowing of that amount. Yep. And that's not uncommon. Like in a business these days, like I've had credit cards up to that when we were running things at that scale. Like it's these days I don't because of borrowing, but I can see how quite easily you could get into that trap. And if you layer this, you've got the credit card at 50 grand and then the car for 50 grand, which wouldn't be uncommon. There goes a lot of borrowing power and ability to transition into wealth. Totally. It, it creates a situation where it starts to feel uh, impossible, improbable and unnecessary to even want to try and do it which I think is one of the big things that holds a lot of people back because they're like, oh, I guess that's just for other people. They don't understand the mechanics and therefore they start to think, Look, I know that people make money in real estate, but I, it doesn't seem like I can do it. For some reason, I'm a special snowflake and my unique situation just means that I can't. And I guess that's just how it is. I guess I'll probably never do it. Or maybe it's just something I'll do when I'm older. And it's like, it just doesn't have to be that way. You just need to think about it a little differently. I completely agree with that. I want to take this in, um, still on the topic of borrowing, because I feel like this is the stuff I didn't know that I wish um, I did prior mm -hmm. to getting into property. But I would ask another thing. One of the challenges I've come up against is when I've gone for loans. Um, and again, I would say my books are pretty clean. We, we don't carry debt in the business. I would, I would say I'm in a, a fairly good position overall. Yep. One of the things that's come up for me is that the banks have actually uh, requested 30% deposits on my loans. Like I've had a property go through just recently and big thanks for help with that as well, Bruce. Um, but I've had a property go through actually yesterday, we'll just say, and yeah. the bank required a 30% deposit to make that happen. Where often I will uh, look in either, let's say, listening to another podcast or a forum and they're talking about like 90% loans or 80% loans where that hasn't been accessible to me in my circumstance. Now, I will acknowledge I haven't gone through all the banks or anything like that, but is that something common business owners come up against with LVRs or is this something to do with lenders or how do we need to think about this? That's an interesting one. It's all about risk, okay? So... Um, there's no there's no single answer to that. The reason there's no single answer to that is that there are a couple of hundred uh, different lenders in the country, you know, from from major to minor to private to all of that kind of stuff. Every single different lender has a different policy. They have different policies on how they assess risk, how they value properties, and uh, how they uh, assess income, or all of that kind of stuff. So it's 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 very hard to say. Well, it's just like this, and I think that any one. So I don't. One of the big things that I think is a problem in this whole industry is that everyone thinks there's a one size fits all strategy, um, and that's just not the case. Now, what I would say though is that there are some industries where professionals, typically employees, can get up to ninety five percent with no lenders mortgage insurance because they're deemed very low risk. In fact. There are even situations and lenders where lenders will lend up to 105%, right? Which, and, and this is all based around their risk tolerance. Because you've got to remember, banks are businesses too. They're not there to give you, they're not there just because they have money and there's just this magical place where you just go and borrow money. And so, with their business, they assess risk. So, 
depending on a few things. How long have you had your business? What type of industry are you in? What is the, the structure of your revenue system? Do you have reliable recurring revenue? Is it like, uh, you know, is it fee for service? What's the, all of this kind of stuff, right? It, that, will, that will assess the risk. And based on their level of, of risk tolerance, they will then decide whether or not they are prepared to lend money to you. Now, to take this one step further, banks sometimes stop issuing loans. So banks, there are, there's been many cases uh, where, and this happens super regularly, like this is not some every unit, like it happens very regularly. A bank will just say, nope, we're not doing any more loans. No loans anymore. We're not doing any more loans. And the reason for that is they will have reached their level of risk capacity. They will have assessed the level of risk they're prepared to hold based on their current position, et cetera, their holdings and all of that kind of stuff. And they'll go, we don't want to take on any more risk. And until something changes on their balance sheet, they won't issue any more loans. And so when you're thinking about how to get finance, you just need to think about how much of a risk do I present to the person that is borrowing money? So you, you know, you think about a bank, think, think about a bank like a human being, right? And if you went to, if you think about, if you've read Richest Man in Babylon, Richest Man in Babylon, and you think, all right, I'm going to go to the money lender, right? I always like to think about it, the money lender as opposed to like a bank because a bank feels like a building and an institution. But if you think about it like the money lender, and if I was to go to the money lender, the guy down the, down the cobbled streets, you know, there's horses everywhere. If I had to go down to the money lender and say, hi, money lender, hi, I'd like to borrow some money from you. And he'll say, okay, well, tell me, what do you want to spend it on? Okay, well, I want to spend it on this. Okay, okay, cool. And so how much, of, how much money have you got to put into this deal? And you go, well, I've got this much to put into it. And then they say, okay, how do I know that you can pay this back? Okay, well, then this is how I think I can pay that back. Okay, all right. Well, that's a risk that I'm prepared to take or it's not a risk that I'm prepared to take. And it's that simple. That's essentially, that's essentially the process. So to understand uh, how, to, how to approach lending, it's all about how to understand how to best position yourself in line with reducing your, at least your appearance of risk. And this goes for anyone, not just business owners. That's really interesting, Goose. Really interesting way of thinking about it. And to when I think about it, as you say, it is like I think because a lot of my assets are digital. Mm-hmm. I think the banks caught in a very real situation of not being able to know how to value or uh, liquidate them should anything happen. Where if I was, let's say, a clothes store or, or retailer or something that had a lot of planned equipment or buildings, stock. it'd be a lot easier. Yeah, stock. Yeah, it'd be a lot easier to say, oh, hang on, like if this goes badly, we can. This is where we can get our money, <laughs> so totally. to speak. Yeah, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And that's, and that's exactly it. Now, you might say, you might say, I have a lot of digital assets and I have all of this stuff and I do this stuff online. Now, I'm going to be like, so you're a guy with websites? Mm. The Google. You're the Google. It's always yeah. the Google as well, not just Google. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so you live in the Google. Hmm. So it's, um, so it's, so it's, uniquely, it's uniquely different. And as you pointed out there as well, like if you've got, if you've got a retail chain or a, um, you know, one of our clients, one of our clients who's a business owner owns a logistics and distribution um, uh, business. Uh, it's, and it's going really well because one of his main clients is um, HelloFresh, right? So his business has been booming through this period. Um, but he's got infrastructure. He's got, he's got long-term contracts with, you know, ASX-listed companies. He's got trucks. He's got all of this stuff. He's got heaps of asset value and continuity. So his borrowing capacity is through the roof. Yeah, I guess you, as a business owner, and if you are a business owner listening to this, you, you've really got to take a little bit of a self-assessment on like mm. how, again, in this, like are you more in the older school have physical assets, digital school of online things, and then you may have to approach how much of a deposit you bring together or how you make your business look to make this whole game work as, I, as I'm discovering along the way. Now, I, I'd like to kind of um, change it up here and talk to another side of this because... I suppose I've spoken into a little bit here about like, you know, there's some disadvantages uh, for business owners with borrowing and that mm. they may need to look in a certain way versus someone saying in an employee. But I'd love to go into the tax side of things though, because I feel like this is an area where we have a little bit of an advantage. Totally. So let's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really valuable for, to keep this line or like we'll keep it around like the, the financial mechanics, right? Because there's a lot of different ways we can go with this, but I think it's a really interesting thing to keep exploring. So tax, tax. we spoke about that a moment ago where we touched on, you know, don't, don't just buy useless crap so that you can claim it on your tax. That's just dumb, right? That's just stupid behavior. 
However, there are some unique uh, there are some unique opportunities that um, that business owners have when it comes to financial strategy. Now there are some challenges, but then there's some benefits as well. So, for example, you can if you if you now you can become a business owner. Being a business owner is not some. Uh, not, not some, it's not like becoming an Olympic athlete, right? You don't need to go to swim training seven days a week and all of that kind of stuff. You oh, can, hold up, hold up. I think, that, I think we should instill some of that. I see some things where some prior training would come in very handy for people. <laughs> um, I feel like the <laughs> barrier to entry is actually a burden on a lot of people, not an advantage, but a different conversation. Hang on a second, hang on a second. Hang on. I, can have, I can be an internet business owner if I have an ABN and I'm on the Google. Right. So, and, <laughs> so, but what, what, I, what my, my point that I'm making, like to be a successful business owner is one thing. However, to own a business is a very simple thing because a business, a business is just a structure. It's just a vehicle. Okay. So when you think about um, real estate intertwining with business, you can create some very unique environments. So for example, as a business owner, you can claim more things on your tax, right? Now, you may want to start a business specifically for your real estate investing, which is what some of our other business owner clients have done, but also what people who don't, who aren't, who don't make their money from business have also done. Okay, so once you, once you, you may start a proprietary limited company or some kind of unit trust structure or corporate beneficiary structure or some other, some other vehicle, but just got to remember that it's a vehicle, right? So, your ABN and, or ACN or whatever that case may be is, is a structure that houses the financial mechanics of your current investment. Now, if you have a business, so let's just say dash dot as a business, we have, we're, a company, we're a registered company, right? So we've got an ACN, we've got a company structure, we've got an ABN that sits within that, all of that kind of stuff. That structure is basically uh, an on paper physical premise that houses the financial comings and goings of our business, right? So you can then start, apply that same premise, that same structure to your real estate investing strategy and do the same thing. And if you think about that, that businesses are just structures and vehicles to move one, one, financial, uh, one financial happening from one place to another and account for it in a certain way and give you a certain result, then you can start to understand how this works. So one of the big advantages of people who... who uh, either invest in a business or are business owners is you can start to claim more things on tax. So one of the things that, one, a very simple one from our perspective is, is buyer's agency fees, right? So it's very hard for someone who doesn't have a business structure. Now, this is not tax advice. Don't, do not, do not, this is not tax advice. However, if I, if I am consulting about, about real estate to a business owner, then it's very, it's very easy to start to wind those kind of costs into the operating expenses of the business, Okay, so there's also other things that you can do as well. You can start to, you can start to offset income strategies. You can start to move the money around in different ways that can reduce your taxable revenue in in, a, in an intelligent way without compromising your borrowing capacity. Does that make sense? It definitely does, Goose. And I would go as far to say, if you've got a property business and you need some space at home, perhaps a home office to manage that property business, well, I imagine that that would be a business expense as well. I mean. <laughs> You would have to start considering things like this in how you run your property business, would you not? Oh, well, yeah, definitely have to think about these kind of things. So, and and I think that I think that that's I think that's a unique position that people can take because some of the net operating expenses, and this is a way to think about because remember, real estate investing is a business. Some of the net operating expenses or fixed and variable expenses inside your, your real estate investment business can be offset if you position them in the right way in a tax intelligent way. So one of the other things we can talk about is, is um, I, I think like, does that kind of make sense? Do you want to expand on that anyway, in any way, shape or form from there? Because I think there's another really... Definitely. I definitely do, but I, I want to go to another point as well, but I'll, I'll stay there. I, I think what I really want to make sure I understand here is mm. that is there an advantage to setting my real estate business? So let's say I'm not in real estate, I'm creating a separate real estate business for investors. Is there a significant advantage in setting it up that way versus let's say just putting it in your own name and running it through some sort of just personal name stuff? To be completely transparent, that is... Are absolutely unique to an individual's personal circumstances. 
So it's going to depend very, very largely on um, their income and a whole bunch of stuff. So I can't speak to that in a in a meaningful way. But, but is, are, it, is it worth investigating that? Is it important to understand which camp you sit in yes. um, before you get too deep into this? Because I've heard nightmare stories about people buying things in trusts only to find out they shouldn't have. And totally. getting them out of trust is very expensive. Well, absolutely. So I actually had a guy call me. I had a guy call me two days ago, and he is uh, he's sixty years old. He thought he was doing all of the right stuff. He bought four properties. Um, he put them all in individual trusts because he heard that that was a really good idea. Uh, and he's got heaps of equity now. Can't use any of it. Like literally, can't do anything. The, the assets that he the assets that he bought aren't producing enough income for his retirement. Which is sort of what he started trying to do, right? But, but, and but because now he's sixty, he can't. Firstly, he's basically his his risk to the bank is that they don't want to lend him money anyway. But he also has he has literally, I think it was I can't even remember it was close to a million dollars worth of available equity that he can't touch because each of those assets are are housed within their own independent vehicle, which have no which have no interface with any, with any of the other vehicles and therefore he basically can't do anything with it. Now, to get them out of a trust or to get them out of a company structure, remember, every company is viewed as a human, okay, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But if you, if you want to exchange the ownership of a, a, an asset, particularly a real estate asset, and you're going to move it from one owner on the title, which could be Goose McGrath Proprietary Limited. If you want to take it from Goose McGrath Proprietary Limited to Goose McGrath, then I'm going to need to pay stamp duty on that again. I'm going to need to pay all of that kind of stuff because it's going to be changing hands. It's going to be changing title. And you'll be paying stamp duty at the current value, not the what you bought it for way back. See, that just hurts. That hurts so much. Yeah. And I, I'll tell a relatable story here quickly. Um, I won't name this person just because it's private information, but I know someone who had spent 30 years building a business under the and full well knowing that they had bought land f- that the business is housed on and they, the whole plan is to sell it. Like there's never been a clearer plan ever on selling a business. Like that's the whole intention. And under the poor advice of the company structure, have gotten to this point where the land itself has gone up massively in this time, massively. But the tax rate based on the structure they set this up in versus if they'd have set it up in another way, like it's a difference of like a million dollars. Like that's how much they've lost purely on not taking the time to get set up in the right structure based on what they knew they were doing. The game plan hasn't changed. They didn't take that time for the self-assessment to go, this is the camp and the structure I need to be in for my circumstance. Yeah, totally. And look, there are benefits. There are benefits in setting up different trust structures, right? Because you can, for example, you can house the, uh, you can house the gains of your portfolio within a, a company structure. We'll call it. Well, let's say maybe a family. Let's maybe call it a family trust with a corporate beneficiary system. You can house the gains within that, and then you can distribute them to different family members who are on different tax rates and all of that kind of stuff. This is all legal and like legitimate stuff you can do. So, for example, if you made a hundred thousand um, dollars, maybe say to development or something like that, and you and you made a hundred thousand dollar gain, now your company structure would be liable to pay tax on that. Unless, of course, it was an expense that was distributed to employees or beneficiaries, and you could then distribute those gains in a way that was tax efficient. So, for example, Charlie, if you were earning a lot of money and you're in a high tax rate, but your let's just say your your brother or friend or whatever your your family member was maybe a beneficiary, and you went, okay, look, I am actually going to pay heaps of tax on this, but you basically don't earn any money. Like, what's going on over here? And then you, you distributed that money to them they could be on a lower tax rate. And you can do that kind of stuff to be really tax efficient. Now, you can do that with your, you can do that with the anchor, with your wife, you can do that with whoever, right? You can, you can start to really think about how you can distribute those, those revenue streams. And there's also another interesting thing in there. Um, I don't want to get too heavily into it, but you can actually start to mitigate capital gains and stuff like that as long as you're um, transferring the ownership, the way that you're transferring the ownership around or, or not transferring the ownership around by maintaining it in a company structure. So there's a lot of fantastic and big ideas here, right? So we're just talking about a whole bunch of like circumstances where people could grow or go wrong or get it right. But I'll ask probably the important question. Mm. Where do you go? Who do you speak to to get the advice to understand which one's right for you? Because I think one could make the assumption it might be an accountant, but this might be the same person who's saying buy a car. Or is this your 
broker? Is this your property? Like, where do you bring everyone together to have this conversation to get aligned and make sure it's the right thing for you? I'm going to have to be very honest here. I am yet to find one single source uh, professional who can legitimately answer and solve all of these problems for people. So it doesn't exist yet. No, and I know that there is someone out there. And if you're listening to this and you're like, hang on, I know how to do all this, please reach out because I've spoken to um, a lot of different accountants and a lot of different brokers and all of that kind of stuff. The the premise is all there. Like like you can you can you can lay it all out. However, what what I tend to find happens is that that different professionals will have different cognitive biases towards different inclinations, and they will typically overlay their own opinions onto their clients' needs in a way that isn't necessarily the most laterally approached or uniquely um, beneficial way, which is a short version of saying that I haven't found anyone who's got all the answers. I've spoken to a lot of people to get a lot of ideas on how this works and I've found some people who can do some stuff quite well and other people who can do other stuff quite well. But one of the big things you do have to consider is, is what is your overarching investing strategy? Because if you, if you for example... Um, try if you if you're like I'm going to invest in one state, for example, and you put too many properties in one trust, you're going to be paying a lot of land tax, and there's heaps of other implications. So it's not as simple as just going, all right, cool, I'll start a company and then I'll claim more tax. It's like you may actually end up it may actually end up losing money if your circumstance dictates that you're that that's the wrong thing for you. So um, I definitely think get advice from a good broker, typically a broker who's also an investor and has also had to walk that path as well because finance strategy is one of the most important things you've got to consider. Like how am I how am I setting up the financing of this in a way that is going to make the most amount of sense? Because if you can solve the pathway of money, if you can solve the if you can solve the riddle of how is my how is my money going to flow from me to my assets and back to other assets and then around through other assets and back to me and how you can solve that. And that's finance strategy. And that can come from a broker, right? Or, or a finance strategist. Then you've got to think about, okay, well, how do I avoid tax? Then that comes through. Then you've got to go, okay, hey, here's my finance strategy. This is what I'm doing. So are you an accountant that can understand what I'm doing? And if you can understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, can you help me understand how best to mitigate my tax based on this without breaking the finance strategy that I've got? funny, Goose. I'll bring this back to business. I love what you said there. And I think that one of the things I'd probably, um, I would say is that you mentioned something about like biases and understanding there. And I bring this back to business. I once had a mentor who didn't understand anything about the internet. Really successful guy, really, really successful guy. And um, his principles were fantastic. Like he had a lot of these principles that I thought were just genius. But his misunderstanding of what I actually did or have the ability to do online didn't have him be able to understand the capabilities and there was huge missed opportunities and costly mistakes. And I just look at that and it's like, he didn't have bad intentions. He wasn't malice. I actually think he really cared and wanted me to be successful, but he kneecapped me. (laughs) He absolutely kneecapped me unintentionally. And I kind of feel like that's the same thing that can happen here if you're unaware to that type of thing. I think you've almost got to go into this knowing that, hang on, the professionals I have may not be adept in this area. They might be professionals in a certain space. And this might actually be a time where I need to bring multiple professionals into the same room. Yep. So you might need to bring your accountant and broker and property guy all together and say, like, I need you guys to be able to communicate and understand each other. You need a team. You need a team. You need a team. And I would go, I, I would just, you, you touched on something there as well. There is no one size fits all strategy, right? For, for this. And so I think this is one of the hugest like plagues in this whole industry is you get, there are some very prominent um, podcasts and um, property professionals who will say, look, the key, all that you need to do, the only thing that you ever need to do to be successful uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a business owner. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're working at Kmart. The only thing that you need to do is buy properties that are 8 to 10 kilometers from the CBD and negatively gear them so that you pay less tax. That's it. That's it. And like, I, 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 like, that, is like that is like prescribing, that is like, uh, prescribing morphine for a cold. It's like you don't even know what the problem is. How can you, how can you understand? Well, you don't even know what I'm trying to achieve. Is that really right? I want more money, not less. Why would I, I do that? 
That's a slavery sentence. Uh, don't get me wrong, it actually could work very long term if you want to work for the rest of your life. But I would very much say that if you are, well, for negative gearing to work, the money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, it absolutely 100% works. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It absolutely 100% works. But it is absolutely 100% not right for 100% of people. And that's the Back problem. To the premise. That's the premise. Yeah, that's that, and exactly right. And I think, you know, we can dig into, I, I can pick holes in that whole strategy for a little bit, but let's not get, let's not get into that. We can probably talk about that enough. We actually, that's a great topic for another episode because a lot of, a lot of business owners um, will probably be, in fact, most people are probably going to be thinking that that might be a good idea at some point. I had, I had a lawyer asking me about that the other day, but that's probably a whole nother episode because I think there's a lot to pick apart there. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, um, I'm mindful of time, but I want to, I want to touch on one of the things because it relates specifically um, to uh, to the finance financial aspect of, of all of this, and you kind of touched on it a moment ago. Home offices, okay. So now I'm I'm personally interested because I know that you've been on a bit of a journey, understanding from a position of an investor and a homeowner and a business owner what the possibilities are in terms of tax and stuff like that. Obviously, you know, just just ideas and not tax advice. Um, around rent vesting and how you, how that can be beneficial to a business owner. It's a really interesting topic. And I'll preface this by anything I say or have said on this show, I don't mean for you to take action on, but I mean, you mean for you to question the people you're working with and question them on this stuff so they can do a better job for you. So I want to inspire, not advise really clearly with this stuff. Yep. Now, I, I had this really interesting experience uh, not long ago where a friend of mine was uh, elaborating on that as a business owner, who does work from home. And again, I like paying tax. I just want to pay the right amount of tax. It's efficient tax. I like my roads. I like my bins being picked up. I like schooling. I like the health system. I want that to continue. That's not the aim of the game. But um, he had expressed that he was renting a property uh, instead of living in his own home. And because he worked from home, like he does have a legitimate online business, that he was able to claim a certain percentage of his rent and that actually it wasn't the same as the average person who has a job renting. So for example, we'll use round numbers, is that if he was going to rent a place for $1,000 a week and half of the place was used for his uh, business, he would be able to claim 50% of his rent and utilities as a tax deduction. So I suppose in the ways of thinking this is that he was able to significantly reduce his living expenses in a rental environment that he wouldn't necessarily be able to achieve in owning his own home because he can't claim those office expenses in the same way. Now, you still may be able to claim some office expenses in your home, but he realized very quickly that there's a significant advantage to him renting instead of living. And uh, he did this interesting maths equation, which I thought was there is like 10 years from now, if I just invested the difference in one of those compound interest calculators, you know, what, what's the real worth here? And, and that was the moment when I got very interested. Mm. That was the moment when I was like, right, this, this isn't like... A twenty dollar difference or a latte difference. This is like over the over ten years. This is a, another house deposit. This is the significant debt saving, and and that's where the journey kind of began of going. This isn't the game. Isn't necessarily stacked in the favor of owning your own home and living in it. And I think that goes very much against the popular belief of Australian culture. And I'll go as far as to say I think they intentionally have kept it that way because they can sting your heart of living from home. Yeah. Yeah, the great the great Australian dream is designed. I think uh, maybe not architecturally designed, but but uh, but the, the the design of the great Australian dream is designed to keep people in a job for a very long time, and they keep changing the 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 pension dates and your access to super that keeps getting longer. The and and, and it just becomes a longer and a longer and a longer trap. And there's a smarter way to do this, you know. Like a lot of people get told that that life wasn't meant to be easy. I think that that is just. I think that that is just the stupidest. I, I bet you you've thought it. I've thought it. I think everyone's thought it. Anytime that things aren't going that well, and and they're like, okay, well, I guess this is just how it's supposed to be because life wasn't meant to be easy. And I'm like, guys, that that that's like Stockholm syndrome right there. Maybe life was meant to be easy. Maybe our job. Maybe our job is just to work out how to make it so. I think people do a good job of making it hard as well. I certainly see people making life harder than it needs to be a lot. Because it's virtuous. Because the harder you can make it, the more that the more that you're 
you know, experiencing and you're doing it and you're a battler and there's all this kind of stuff. It doesn't need to be that way. It just does not need to be that way. I completely agree. I think that there are a lot of people making harder, but I, I mean, I want to, I am mindful of time, of course. I know we're going to wrap this one up shortly, but yeah. I will just want to express one more thing on ring festing that this was the other side of the conversation that really made me curious as a business owner. Let, let's pretend I'll use my situation. Um, I've had my house for 10 years. I've been very good at smashing the mortgage. Like that's where we've put a lot of our surplus. And the other side of it is, uh, and this is what I was there in my circumstance, if I looked at this and I say, went and rent vested, I'm not in a position where I'm starting from scratch. Like all of a sudden, the perceived uh, asset I have that is more of a liability now can turn into an asset. Mm. And I just realized that if you're someone that's maybe in your own home and you're someone who's going to transition into rent vesting or that's a possibility for you, how much capital you can inject into your portfolio or investing journey really quickly really gave me like the time it would take me to save the same amount in cash or produce the same amount in cash versus what was already sitting in that asset is very skewed as well, which I think can give people a huge jump start. I think reinvesting is something that needs to be considered not just for people that are starting out and 20 years old and green-eyed and the first one going in, but very seriously for those that have had homes for a long time as well. I couldn't agree with that more. I think there's two there's two big things. First, it changes your changes your debt ratio and increases your capital uh, liquidity. And those two things, those two things can help you if you're if you've got a bit of equity in your home and all of that kind of stuff. And those two, even if even if that property isn't positively geared when you rent it out, even if it isn't right, even if it isn't, even if it's four and a half percent yield or whatever. But if you turn that into an income producing asset instead of an income using asset then you can increase your liquidity. And just by doing that, by being able to access your equity, increase your liquidity, lowering your debt don't lowering your debt to income ratio, you can totally transform your financial position. Now, we, at the start of the episode, we talked about the, the three core desires, more time, more money, more freedom. And you can actually have that in a much, much, much shorter period of time than most people will lead you to believe. All you need to do is get a little bit more, more intelligent and start thinking laterally about what is the movement of the financial resources or all of the resources I have, everything from relation, relational capital to financial capital to uh, intellectual capital, and how can I utilize these to achieve that goal? And that goal doesn't have to happen when you're 60. That goal can happen in three years from now. It can happen in five years from now if you start to think about how can I be smarter with this and how can I actually get more? How can I... How can I work less, make more? How can I do more with less? How can I do all of this stuff? And if you, if anyone's read the four-hour work week and millions and millions and millions have, the whole idea of lifestyle design. Now, look, you mentioned in the last episode, for working four hours a week is great as long as competition's only working two. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But the, the idea about lifestyle design, this is not some esoteric pie in the sky uh, it only happens for Ivy League, you know, startup investors in the US who who got lucky with a with a, uh, a supplement chain and all of that kind of stuff. Lifestyle design comes down to you as the individual taking ownership of of being the artist in your own journey, and you actually have a whole cadre. You have a you have a, a smorgasbord of different paints and different materials, and you can literally create the canvas of your life in any way that you want. That is lifestyle design. You want to be location independent? You want to move around the country? You want to do all of that kind of stuff? You can. Just think about how, not how not. And I think that's a, a huge takeaway from this conversation. Boom. If this mic wasn't on a boom arm, I would have dropped it right then. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the perfect sign-off for this episode. So let's wrap this one up, Goose. Perfect. Very uh, astute and wisdomous uh, final thoughts there. Wisdomous. I like that. Cool. All right, mate. I'm looking forward to the next episode. See you then.